Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 2, Side 1. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Bailey was editor of the Cincinnati Philanthropist, the first anti-slavery journal in the West, whose office had been the target of mobs on three occasions. Your troubles are yet to come, and they may indeed be fiery, wrote Bailey. The prejudice against the Negro would be directed against his friends, ran Bailey's words of warning. Their motives would be impeached, their doctrines misrepresented, their good names slandered, and, like as not, their persons assailed. Maria Weston Warren, pillar of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society, bore a similar reckoning of the price one paid to join the movement. It has occasioned our brothers to be dismissed from the pastoral charge, our sons to be expelled from colleges and theological seminaries, our friends from professorships, ourselves from literary and social privileges. By most of their countrymen, the abolitionists were looked upon as sappers of the social order who incited the slaves to rebel and the free Negro to seek intermarriage. And almost as bad, they endangered property rights, enfeebled the church, and subverted the Constitution. Ostracism from polite society was one of the crosses an abolitionist might be called upon to bear. The public health pioneer, Dr. Henry I. Bowditch, found himself debarred from many fashionable parties despite his international reputation in medicine. Hickner's pleasant literary coteries were no longer accessible, he noted wryly in his journal. For opposing slavery, wrote the clergyman author Theodore Parker, he had got nothing but a bad name. While in Philadelphia in May 1833, the clergyman Samuel J. May escorted one of the Fortin sisters to an abolitionist meeting. When he returned to Boston, he found that the news had preceded him. Is it true, Mr. May, said a lady to me, that you walked in the streets of Philadelphia with a colored girl? To be an abolitionist was to invite economic reprisals, a freezing of one's credit, a loss of employment, or a blacklisting of one's name. A clergyman like Aidan Ballou might have a wealthy parishioner suddenly demand payment on a note. An abolitionist professor might lose his chair, as did Charles Fallon at Harvard, or an abolitionist judge might lose his seat on the bench, as in the case of William Jay, son of the first Chief Justice of the United States. Joshua Coffin lost his mailman's job for assisting a kidnapped Negro. James Russell Lowell was loath to take money for anti-slavery work, but he accepted $500 a year to do a weekly article for the anti-slavery standard, ruefully noting that his abolitionism had cut him off from the most profitable sources of my literary emolument. For his anti-slavery views, John G. Fee was disowned by his father. 
Social intermingling between whites and blacks in the abolitionist movement had its special perils. A few white abolitionists, troubled because their colored fellow workers faced discrimination in public places, made it a point to appear with them, courting their lot. Still fewer, like Theodore D. Weld, ate at Negro homes and attended their parties, weddings, and funerals. At the marriage of Weld and Angelina Grimke on May 14, 1838, Grace Douglas and Sarah M. Douglas were among the nearly fifty guests, and Theodore S. Wright was one of the two clergymen offering prayers. But such conduct was as unpopular as it was uncommon. When the just-completed Pennsylvania Hall in Philadelphia was sacked and burned two days after the Weld-Grimke wedding, the newspapers charged the abolitionists with bringing it about by having Negroes seated side by side with whites at meetings and by condoning, if not fostering, interracial arm-in-arm walking in the streets adjacent to the building. The charge of social intermingling was emotion-laden, and hence likely to lead to trouble. In the early days of the movement, abolitionism was synonymous with amalgamationism in the popular mind. Indeed, a white who worked for the repeal of an intermarriage law had as his real object a Negro wife, ran a familiar bit of popular lore. It was unfounded. On one occasion, an unnamed white correspondent to an abolitionist newspaper announced that he was prepared to bear testimony against prejudice by marrying a colored woman who was young, respectable, and intelligent. From Baltimore, the publisher, Hezekiah Niles, acidly remarked that he would like to have the honor of announcing the betrothal. Persons so chivalric should not be thwarted in their desires. But white abolitionists, almost entirely without exception, were not given to marrying across the color line. Even in Massachusetts, after the law repealing the prohibition against it was abrogated in 1843. Denying that they were amalgamationists, the abolitionists charged that racial intermixing was peculiarly a southern custom, the natural offspring of slavery. We do not encourage intermarriage between the white and blacks, said the New Hampshire Anti-Slavery Society in a notice to the public. We would discountenance it expressly and distinctly. Such denials by the reformers had little influence on their detractors, particularly the kind who were prone to taking things in their own hands. Amalgamation was a fuse that could be quickly ignited, all the more because the atmosphere was highly charged. Nonviolence was scarcely an American trait, even in the haunts of Thoreau. As Henry Adams observed in reflecting upon his salad years, if violence were a part of a complete education, Boston was not incomplete. Whenever he heard Garrison or Phillips speak, he looked for trouble. An abolitionist gathering was hardly a smoothly run affair. At the opening of one of the national meetings at Broadway Tabernacle in New York, a mob took charge for three hours, howling till they were hoarse. When the police authorities confessed that they could do nothing, the landlord ordered the abolitionists to leave the building. If property might be endangered, so might persons. Reformers ran the risk of rough handling, although one of them, a professor at Oberlin, wore a specially constructed storm suit while attending abolitionist soirees. Samuel J. May, of quiet manner and fragile build, 
never forgot an October he spent in Vermont as agent of the New England Anti-Slavery Society. I was mobbed five times. In Rutland and Montpelier, my meetings were dispersed with violence. Henry B. Stanton was manhandled 150 times in six years, writes the authoritative Dwight L. Dumond, and Theodore D. Weld could be traced from one end of the country to another by such outbursts. Slavery's critics led charmed lives and were seemingly none the worst for their ordeals. In his famous encounter with the Boston mob in the fall of 1835, Garrison sustained certain damages to his clothing, but none in his person. To this seeming immunity from harm, there was one tragic exception, Elijah P. Lovejoy. A clergyman who had become editor of a religious journal, Observer, Lovejoy moved to Alton, Illinois in 1836. Here, as in St. Louis, his anti-slavery views met with determined opposition, his presses being thrown into the river on three separate occasions. On a night in November 1837, Lovejoy was shot and killed as he emerged from a building which the mob, bent on destroying his press, had set on fire. Lovejoy's tragedy was given coverage in the public newspapers, and his name became a symbol to reformers. Negroes were especially moved by the Alton affair. The colored American carried a front-page editorial bordered in black. Boston Negroes held a memorial service at the Smith Street School, and their example was duplicated at Troy, New York, where a saddened company assembled at the Presbyterian Church of Daniel A. Payne. A mass meeting of New York Negroes at the First Colored Presbyterian Church mourned Lovejoy as the first martyr in the holy cause of abolition in the nation. They held no rights dearer than freedom of speech and of the press, ran one resolution, rights especially vital in supplementing the dumb eloquence of the downtrodden slave. A collection of $60 was raised for Lovejoy's widow to be sent along with a letter of condolence. A few weeks later, Joseph C. Lovejoy, one of the martyr's brothers, spoke at the same church. Although Lovejoy had not considered himself an abolitionist, the colored people did. His sacrifice strengthened their high regard for crusaders against slavery. In truth, the movement had done much for the Negro. In 1830, a great majority of the 320,000 free Negroes were in the habit of regarding all whites as their enemies. The abolitionists changed this stereotype. Now Negroes could witness the labors and the sacrifices of white men and women in a cause inseparably linked with their own. The devotion and sacrifices of our white brethren should urge us onward, said the colored American. A figure like Simeon S. Jocelyn, zealous abolitionist and white congregational pastor of a Negro church in New Haven from 1830 to 1834, could not fail to impress Negroes. Congratulated by R. R. Gurley of the Colonization Society, Jocelyn replied that he felt privileged to be laboring among the colored people. The abolitionist crusade gave to Negroes a heightened sense of self-respect. William Whipper credited it with having a more powerful effect on Negro life than all other influences combined, in checking their evil dispositions and inculcating moral principles. Abolitionism acted as a stimulus to Negroes like proclaiming life to a valley of dry bones and calling forth energies and powers never before exercised. 
I confess that I am wholly indebted to the abolition cause for arousing me from apathy and indifference, wrote Sarah Fortin in April 1837, shedding light into a mind which had been too long wrapped in selfish darkness. Negroes showed their gratitude by naming their organizations after outstanding figures in the movement. Three of the benevolent societies in Albany in 1837 were named after Benjamin Lundy, Arthur Tappan, and Garrison, respectively. In the same year, Philadelphia Negroes formed the Levitt Anti-Slavery Society, named after journalist and lecturer Joshua Levitt. In 1840, the National Society split in two, a development that caused the Negro abolitionists to make a fuller use of the resources of the Negro community itself. Their efforts were spurred by a corps of new workers, many of them former slaves, who gave a new dimension to the whole movement. Chapter 3. New Tissue for a Broken Body It is to be regretted that effectual efforts were not made at an early date to furnish a history of the services of men of color. William Yates, 1838 in the spring of 1840, the abolitionist movement split itself into two camps. One, headed by Garrison, had its nominal headquarters in New York, but was centered in Massachusetts with pockets in Pennsylvania and a lonely outpost or two in Ohio. Drawing its strength from points west of New England, the opposing faction included a score of outstanding figures, among them the Tappans, James G. Burney, Garrett Smith, Judge William J., Henry B. Stanton, and Joshua Levitt. Negro abolitionists split also, generally in accordance with the sectional pattern. The schism had its dress rehearsal in Massachusetts, the key issue being the viewpoints of Garrison. By 1839, Garrison had become an unsparing critic of clergymen, charging them with upholding slavery. Negroes supported Garrison in his strictures on the church, but with some misgivings. On one occasion, they stated that Garrison's religious opinions were not necessarily related to the abolitionist movement, and on another, they pointed out that they were Garrison's followers as far as abolition was concerned, but on religious points, we followed Jesus. Garrison's critics justly charged him with espousing reforms that were far afield from abolitionism, such as the non-resistance movement. Considering the existing peace societies unsatisfactory, Garrison was a founder in 1838 of the New England Non-Resistance Society. Garrison scorned the belief that the Bible was of divine inspiration. Moreover, he was an anti-Sabbatarian, holding that no day of the week was holier than any other, and hence regarding as superstition the setting aside of Sunday for religious worship. Garrison was a non-voter. He vowed that he would never hold office or exercise the franchise in a government that included slaveholders. In a public letter to the Negroes of Boston in December 1834, urging them not to support the Whig ticket, Garrison wrote that he saw little intelligence and scarcely any conscience, honesty, or fear of God at the polls. Garrison reasoned that a political party in a country in which slavery existed had to be a pro-slavery party. Moreover, the Constitution, as Garrison saw it, was a pro-slavery instrument and hence not to be supported by a true abolitionist. By 1839, 
1839, Garrison's critics within the abolitionist ranks felt that a change of leadership was mandatory. At Boston, during the annual meeting of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society in May, they raised an objection to women voting at the sessions. Many abolitionists believed that the battle for women's rights, however praiseworthy, should not be tied to the cause of the slave, and it was on this key issue that they chose to make their stand at the Massachusetts Society, but to no avail. The ruling of the chair that women should vote was approved by a large majority. The defeated faction withdrew, forming without delay a rival state organization, the Massachusetts Abolition Society. Within a week, the Negro abolitionists held a mass meeting in Boston to consider the schism. Predictably, they did two things, expressed regret at the division in the ranks and pledged their unanimous support to the garrison group. For its leader, they had nothing but fulsome praise. They denounced any colored person, if any there be, who was hostile to garrison likening such an ingrate to a man who fell off a ship and when rescued by a negro went dripping to the captain to ask if there was no one on board to save him but a nigger a week later a mass meeting of negroes at new bedford took similar action affirming that garrison was right and condemning the massachusetts abolition society utter abhorrence of the new organization was the sentiment of a negro gathering in salem from Philadelphia, Grace and Sarah Douglas sent Garrison a supporting letter that was couched in religious and moralistic tones. Negroes in Massachusetts were of a mood to stand by Garrison shoulder to shoulder and foot to foot, as David Ruggles put it. Hence they were greatly vexed when the Reverend Jehiel C. Beeman took a job with the Massachusetts Abolition Society. With headquarters in Boston, Beeman was to travel to various towns seeking job opportunities for Negroes, and he was to advertise his services in the Colored American and elsewhere. But he got a colder reception in New England than he had anticipated. Garrison and the Boston Negroes, acting in unison, condemned him as a dupe designed to entrap colored people into the new organization. The script for schism was enacted on a wider scale at the annual meeting of the Parent Society in mid-May 1840. Garrison was well prepared for the showdown with the New York abolitionists, even though the site was New York itself. Garrison had made travel arrangements for over 400 followers, hiring boats and extra trains, a step which enabled him to transport his Negro supporters with a minimum of Jim Crow thus ensuring their attendance. At the meeting, held at the Fourth Free Church, the issue quickly came to a head. Abby Kelly, a staunch Garrisonian, was appointed on the business committee, and the crucial vote was taken as to whether she should be confirmed. The vote of 557 to 451 was in her favor. Thereupon, three members of the business committee withdrew their names on the grounds that to place a woman on the committee was throwing a firebrand into the anti-slavery ranks. Three days later, the seceding delegates held a meeting at the Fourth Presbyterian Church and brought into existence a new wing, the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. Its roster of founders numbered 294, of which 110 came from New York State, including 62 from New York City itself. 
Now, after seven years, no one organization could purport to speak for all abolitionism. The professed abolitionists were busy abolishing anti-slavery, wrote Abby Kelly, herself the symbol of the split. The results of the rift were immediately reflected in Negro circles, bringing about a similar parting of the ways. The opening scene, fittingly enough, was furnished by Garrison. On May 18th, with the meetings just over, the Negroes of New York held a bon voyage meeting for Garrison due to embark for London to attend an international anti-slavery conference. The Negroes and some whites packed Theodore S. Wright's First Presbyterian Church. Following Garrison's speech, which was largely his version of the breach in the abolitionist ranks, one of his supporters, Thomas Van Rensselaer, proposed that Garrison and the other delegates chosen by the American Anti-Slavery Society be approved. But there was quick opposition to this resolution, substantially on the ground that it omitted the delegates appointed by the newly organized National Society, one of whom was Samuel E. Cornish. The issue had come to a head. It was, as S.H. Gloucester phrased it, a solemn crisis for the people of color. It was the Negro phase of the battle between old organization versus new organization. The surcharged meeting adjourned by passing no resolution at all, Garrison having made it clear that he would not have his name linked with those from the new organization. Charles B. Ray, a key figure at the meeting, wrote to Bernie explaining the somewhat changed attitude of the New York Negro toward the highly revered Bostonian. If the colored people of this city or any section of this country do manifest less warmth of feeling than formerly toward Mr. Garrison, it is in part owing to our friends having multiplied, and as a necessary consequence, our good feeling is scattered upon all instead of being concentrated upon one as when Mr. Garrison stood alone. Many Negro abolitionists had indeed turned their faces toward the new sun. Eight of them attended the meetings which launched the American and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society, three of whom were named to the 12-man executive committee. Amos G. Beeman served as assistant secretary at the convention, and the closing prayer at the final session was given by Theodore S. Wright. The great majority of black abolitionists in New England would not be drawn into the new society, regarding it as schismatic. Boston Negroes held a meeting to pledge anew their fealty to the old organization, and Negroes at a gathering in New Bedford saw fit to give a tortured explanation to the word foreign in the title of the new society, charging that its tenets were foreign to the principles of freedom and equality. The old organization did not look kindly upon defectors, white or black. Neutrals fared little better, as John W. Lewis soon learned. Having assumed his duties on February 1, 1839, Lewis was an agent for the New Hampshire Anti-Slavery Society. In his first ten months, Lewis had raised $565, and the society was pleased with his work. Nobody thinks of colored inferiority when they hear Brother Lewis, said the Herald of Freedom, organ of the society. When the parent organization split, Lewis declared his neutrality. Thereupon, he quickly lost favor with the New Hampshire Society and old organization affiliate. Its executive board charged that Lewis drew large crowds solely because he was a Negro and not because of his public speaking, 
which was long and loud to the point of exhaustion. The board members expressed the hope that Brother Lewis would take himself to places where he could get more attention and better pay. Lewis fired back with a lengthy reply, in essence expressing the hope that the New Hampshire Society would reserve its heavy guns for slavery instead of disgusting its members by exhibiting a harsh spirit of contention. The Lewis episode and the whole split in the abolitionist ranks tended to make Negroes more outspoken toward their fellow crusaders. The Negroes' considerable indebtedness to the white reformers had never blinded him to their shortcomings. Now, with so much linen being washed in public, the Negro had his bundle to bring, a mixed bundle and of no mean proportions. To begin with, many white co-workers were charged with harboring race bias. Abolitionists have overlooked the giant sin of prejudice, said Theodore S. Wright in an address at Utica before the New York Society, and thus must rid their own bosoms of this foul monster, which is at once the parent and offspring of slavery. Speaking before the Albany Anti-Slavery Society in February 1838, Nathaniel Paul described the kind of abolitionist who hated slavery, especially that which is 1,000 or 1,500 miles off, but who hated even more a man who wears a colored skin. Six weeks after the split, Samuel Ringgold Ward wrote a letter to the anti-slavery standard describing abolitionists who best love the colored man at a distance. In social circles or in company with other whites, this ilk found it difficult to see Negroes, even though they had spectacles on their noses. In July 1849, when James Russell Lowell proposed the name of Frederick Douglass for membership in the short-lived, intellectually-oriented town and country club, he was astonished at encountering opposition, with the finger of suspicion pointing strongly at the high-principled Ralph Waldo Emerson. One of the reasons so many whites joined the abolitionist movement, wrote a Negro editor, was their belief that it stood for abstract principles to be applied to the South without requiring them to battle the prejudices in their own hearts. James McCune Smith found it strange that in the constitution of the American Anti-Slavery Society, no mention was made of social equality as one of its aims. The editor of the Northern Star and Freeman's Advocate had a terse bit of advice. Until abolitionists eradicate prejudice from their own hearts, they can never receive the unwavering confidence of the people of color. There were instances in which white abolitionists attended concerts or recitals at which Negroes were barred or segregated. Moreover, some abolitionists, particularly during the formative 1830s, held that Negroes should not be admitted to anti-slavery meetings or hold membership in the societies, a topic which Charles Fallon aired fully at the meeting of the Massachusetts Society in January 1836. A year earlier, a few colored young women began to attend the monthly gatherings of the Fall River Female Anti-Slavery Society, a circumstance that almost brought about its dissolution. At its meeting on September 15, 1837, the Junior Anti-Slavery Society of the City and County of Philadelphia debated the question, is it expedient for colored persons to join our anti-slavery societies? The vote of 31 in favor to 21 against 
was hardly reassuring to Negroes in light of the youthful and presumably more liberal makeup of the society. Negroes in Albany were disenchanted with a local abolitionist who refused to rent them a frame tenement, giving as his reason the attitude of his neighbors. This consideration for the feelings of the community was the chief argument advanced by the conservative abolitionists. Undoubtedly, however, it often cloaked a color prejudice of which the practitioner was not aware. In reformist circles, as elsewhere, there was a strong undercurrent of anti-Negro sentiment, mirrored in the common preference for light-skinned Negroes over those of richer pigmentation. She was not very dark, wrote Sarah H. Southwick of Susan Paul, a fellow member of the Boston Female Anti-Slavery Society. Joshua Easton might urge his white co-workers to strike not at slavery alone, but against the spirit which made color the mark of degradation. However, there were limits to what exhortation would do. Conquering an aversion to social contacts with Negroes was not easy. Abolitionizing one's own heart was a formidable assignment. Even when they worked side by side, white and Negro abolitionists scarcely sustained a peer relationship. Whites tended to be paternalistic, reflecting a father-knows-best attitude. They tended to praise an above-average Negro almost to the point of eulogy, as if in surprise that he revealed any ability at all. And, like the earlier abolitionists, they were fond of giving advice to Negroes, their remarks interlarded with beatitudes. The advice might have been good. Certainly it was much like that given by Negro leaders themselves. But if one Negro criticized another for patronizing a Dan Rice minstrel show while ignoring a Magic Lantern exhibition on slavery being held in the same block, the whole thing somehow seemed freer of racial connotations. The chief criticism against the white abolitionists by their black counterparts was their half-heartedness in carrying out the second of their twin goals, the elevation of the free Negro. Equal rights for Negroes was an essential corollary of abolitionism. Improving the lot of the northerners of color was a clearly stated goal. The main union in behalf of the colored race, formed in Portland in 1835, was a reflection of this outlook. Aware of this dual commitment, nearly every abolitionist society had a special committee on the welfare of the free Negro. But in most instances, this is about as far as it went. Such committees, as a rule, simply did not function. Hence, in this quarter, the abolitionists were vulnerable. In their strong campaign against slavery in the South, they half overlooked slavery in the North, wrote a Negro editor in 1839. The Negro people needed jobs, as their spokesman constantly stressed. In 1831, Maria W. Stewart asked several women to hire colored girls. Abolitionists were asked to give Negro apprentices and mechanics an equal chance at least and a preference if possible, there being neglected people. In an editorial that brought a flood of approving letters, an Albany Weekly informed the white abolitionists that Negroes did not expect to ride in their carriages or sup at their parties, but they did hope that avenues of employment would be opened up by their alleged friends. Such thrusts, sharp as they were, brought few changes. 
Most white abolitionists simply did not think in terms of the working man, white or colored. Men of great understanding in some things, they never seemed to fully sense that economic freedom was co-equal with, if not basic to, all other freedoms. To be sure, there were a few gestures by individuals and organizations. In isolated instances, an abolitionist might employ a skilled Negro. Lewis Tappan, for example, paid Patrick H. Reason $70 to do a steel engraving of his brother, Benjamin. The Tappans were pleased with the product, and Lewis thought that the anti-slavery cause would be advanced if it were known that a Negro was capable of such craftsmanship. But, he added in his letter to Reason, perhaps it will be best to wait until you have engraved two or three more before the secret is let out. Abolitionist organizations made some token efforts to help the black working man. Following an address by Charles Lennox Raymond in November 1837, the Rhode Island Anti-Slavery Society voted to aid Negroes to get jobs as clerks. The philanthropist, organ of the Ohio Society, made its office into a referral agency at which employers willing to take colored apprentices might leave their names and colored parents with sons to be apprenticed might follow suit. Perhaps the most futile attempt at helping the Negro by an organization was furnished by the American Union for the Relief and Improvement of the Colored Race. Founded in Boston in 1835 and backed by 100 men in 10 states, it proposed to give elementary schooling to the Negro and to teach him trades. The American Union's membership was of the old-school pillars of society type, men who were given more to reflection than to action. Hoping to resurrect the harmony and forbearance of the old days, they shied away from the word immediate, favored colonization, and preferred to characterize slavery as a wrong rather than as a sin, a vital distinction then. As could be expected, the Union aroused the scorn and hostility of Garrison. Labeling it an anti-Garrison society, he issued an address to Negroes informing them that the object of the Union was to put them down, with him thrown in for good measure. This ended the possibility that the Union would obtain the necessary cooperation of the colored people in the 1830s. The Union expired within two years. Even under happier auspices, an organized effort to assist the free Negro might not have met with success. In 1836, the American Anti-Slavery Society appointed four agents to work among Negroes devising ways to improve their lot. The suggestion had come from Theodore Weld, whose courage, devotion, and success in winning others to the cause had already marked him in reform circles. In February 1836, Weld wrote to Lewis Tappan, listing ten reasons why the parent society should turn its attention to the elevation of the free Negro. Tappan agreed fully with Wells' memorandum, rewording it in a handwritten report to his fellow members on the executive committee. The committee decided to appoint four agents, selecting Hiram Wilson for the Canadian Theater, John J. Miter and William Yates for work in the East, and Augustus Wattles for Ohio. Wattles, a particular protege of Weld, was designated as Generalissimo of the Colored People. A thoroughgoing equalitarian, he had lodged with a colored family while in Cincinnati as a student at Lane Seminary. 
The agents were dedicated men, but this was not enough. Nor did the project fail for lack of cooperation from Negroes. Eight colored clergymen in New York issued a circular urging full support of the agents and addressed not only to New Yorkers, but also to the free colored citizens of the United States and to all their Christian brethren and friends. But the enthusiasm of the Negroes and the high spirits of the agents could not offset a lack of funds. The Parent Society, in the panic year of 1837, was unable to finance the agents, withdrawing all support by the summer of 1838. The effort was not wholly lost. Hiram Wilson was launched on a career among Canadian Negroes that became his life's work. Yates made a careful survey of Delaware, slavery and the colored people in Delaware, which he found depressing. The Negroes there were undervalued, he wrote, their virtues being disregarded and their degradation magnified. Yates also produced a 104-page pamphlet on civil rights, interspersing it with snatches of Negro history. The subject is a rich one, he concluded. Yates also produced a survey of the Negroes on Long Island. John J. Mitre, apparently the least active of the agents, brought out a study of the Negroes in Newark. Wattles was a zealous worker. In the three months of the spring of 1837, he traveled 575 miles in Ohio, visiting 14 Negro settlements and 44 schools. Late in 1837, he extended his operations into Indiana. Wattles remained on the field for seven years longer, but his funds came from friends and from his own inheritance, the Parent Society having withdrawn its support. We are grieved at the discontinuance of the labors of Monsieur Wattles, Yates, and Wilson, wrote the colored American on October 27, 1838. If elevating the free Negro required money, it also called for common sense. And this, too, was something missing in the proposals made by the abolitionists. In 1839, the New York City Anti-Slavery Society, in a 13-point list of ways to help the colored people, recommended that a book on domestic economy be printed for them and that a joint stock company be organized to trade with the West Indies. Many white abolitionists, as Negroes had sorrowfully come to learn by 1840, had a tendency to abstraction. Such white co-workers viewed the movement as an ideological warfare, the outcome of which was secondary to the stimulus of the mental jousting. To strike a moral posture was more important than to strike at slavery. Wendell Phillips, although almost without peer in the crusade, voiced something of this sense of disengagement in an informal talk to a gathering of fellow reformers at Cochituate Hall in Boston. My friends, if we never free a slave, we have at least freed ourselves in the effort to emancipate our brother man. Negro abolitionists, with the exception of William Whipper, had no fondness for abstraction. Their interest was more personal. A Negro could scarcely muster enough detachment to live in the realms of pure principle, the world being too much with him. An abolitionist who could say, as did Charles K. Whipple, that the principles of morality and religion remain undisturbed by our private exigency was likely to be white, that is, a person with a less urgent private exigency. 
In their ranks, the abolitionists had some question marks. Like any other reform, the crusade had its component of deviant personalities who found in it a release for private devils. The movement also had its universal reformers, men who, like Garrison, embraced several causes concurrently, thus diluting their abolitionism. And finally, the movement had its summer soldiers, who, after a season, disappeared in the shadows. Impulses to withdraw from the movement were numerous, ranging from a waning sympathy for the slave to a desire to concentrate on making enough money to put one's sons through college. All of these sobering factors became more evident to the Negro when the abolitionists split in 1840. Negroes realized that a more realistic appraisal of the movement was in order. The Negro would have to look more to his own strength to put into fuller anti-slavery use his own organizations. Fortunately for the Negroes, they were no strangers to acting in national concert. They had been holding national conventions since mid-September 1830, when 40 delegates from eight states met at Bethel Church in Philadelphia with Richard Allen in the chair. For the following five years, the Negro leaders held national conventions, generally in Philadelphia. These meetings addressed themselves to three topics, or perhaps three aspects of the same topic, namely the repeal of the black laws of the various northern states, the advancement of the free Negro, and the wiping out of slavery. After 1835, the national conventions were held intermittently rather than annually. Their place was filled in some measure by state conventions, such as that held by New York Negroes from 1836 to 1850. Already fervently anti-slavery, the black convention movement would take on an even stronger abolitionist character with the 1840 split in the parent society. The division in the American anti-slavery society has generally been held to be a weakening of the movement. So it was, if one counts the decrease in the number of auxiliaries and the decline in membership. But the split actually had beneficial effects, taking abolitionism into new channels of expression, thus broadening its base. The division in the national society spewed a variety of isms, resulting in moral suasion abolitionism and political abolitionism, wrote William Goodell, a highly respected figure in the crusade. Then came also church reform abolitionism, missionary abolitionism, Methodist, Baptist, Congregational, Independent, and Presbyterian abolitionism. Politicians were careful to supply a Whig and a Democratic abolitionism. And, Goodell might have added, there was a Negro abolitionism. Following the national division in 1840, the immediate question facing the Negro leaders was whether to adopt a go-it-alone policy, relying exclusively on all Negro agencies. The issue came to the fore in May 1840, when a group of Connecticut Negroes meeting in Hartford recommended that a national convention of black men be held in New Haven in September. Such a meeting was necessary because of the division among our friends, as the Reverend J. W. C. Pennington phrased it. Another delegate, James Foster, concurred fully, pointing out that to talk about waiting till our friends get right is nonsense. We must act for ourselves. But this call met with a cool response from the influential leaders of the American Moral Reform Society, 
an organization that had been created by the Black Convention of 1835. Meeting in August 1840, the moral reformists condemned the proposed convention on the grounds that it drew the color line. A week later, William Whipper and Robert Purvis, two of the society's leaders, sent word to David Ruggles, organizer of the scheduled convention, that they could not attend any gathering that was exclusive in character. To those who favored the proposed Negro convention, it was a means of self-expression. If we act with our white friends, wrote Charles B. Ray, the words we utter will be considered theirs or their echo. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now.